2: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
3: Tuesday morning, the 28th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Simon Communities of Ireland has launched its annual Simon Week. The theme this year is Not Good Enough... End homelessness now. Eight thousand people in homelessness is just not good enough. Simon's Wayne Stanley. The crisis in housing stems from availability. The demand is greater than the supply. This has pushed up the cost of housing, while renting has become an unaffordable option for many.
4: And we absolutely need rents to be affordable. We also need them to be viable. Any new measure should be fair. Any new measure must be capable of withstanding legal challenge too, including
3: a
2: constitutional challenge. In relation to supply, I think we can all accept that there are acute pressures in the rental market right now.
3: The Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, is committed to providing housing for all by 2030.
4: One of the cornerstones, though, of housing for all is also the introduction of the new form of tenure cost rental. And between now and 2030, we intend to deliver at least 18,000, not 2,000, 18,000 cost rental homes, which means that tenants pay the cost of delivering, maintaining
2: and managing the homes only.
3: Housing for All plans to deliver some 33,000 housing units per year each year for the next 10 years.
2: 17,000 are going to be private sector, which is subject to change. That may or may not happen. But I think it's that the social housing is the one area where we know the positive from the plan is we have the funding. Uh, We know that we have land because an audit was done. We did an audit in 2018 and this land capacity for around 40, over 49,000 dwellings at old densities, just in local authorities. So we have the two critical aspects of funding and funding and land for delivery.
3: This is housing expert and architect Mel Reynolds, who was speaking yesterday at a virtual conference organised by Simon. Reynolds highlighted the failure of local authorities to reach housing targets in the past. Under the Rebuilding Ireland plan, just 12% of what had been promised in the four and a half years up to 2020 were delivered. A
2: critical target there was 50,000 social homes to be built.
3: An ambitious target... But
2: In the four and a half years of rebuilding Ireland, the total output of local authorities was 4,326 dwellings. That's it. And in addition, approved housing bodies built about 1,400. So you're looking at around 12% of the land capacity was used by local authorities in that four and a half year period.
3: Architect Orla Hegarty said the government needed to move away from the supply, supply, supply mantra. We need to move towards
5: affordability. The crisis in housing is in affordability. It's in people losing their homes because they can't afford them. It's in people not moving on or moving into better housing because they can't afford it. It's in overcrowding, which has public health implications. Uh, People not taking up educational employment or not availing of them fully because they can't afford housing.
3: Affording housing is something that has eluded these people who have sought help from the Simon communities.
5: I tried to get sober many times before but it didn't work out. The difference this time was Simon gave me a place to go and the supports I needed. Unfortunately, there aren't enough homes like that. In my experience, a home is the answer to homelessness.
6: The conversation about the housing crisis seems to be never-ending. Promises are made and nothing comes of it. You can wait there all day long and
3: you're told there's no beds left.
1: The system just keeps knocking you down. But there's only so many times you can get knocked down before you don't get back
3: up. Some of uh, the voices uh, from a video promoting uh, Simon Week uh, 2021. Wayne Stanley, who's head of policy and communications at Simon Communities of Ireland, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Wayne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Indeed, there are just some of the 8,000 voices uh, who are in a homeless situation. Uh, in this country as we speak and who, as you said at uh, the beginning of uh, the programme, are in a situation that you would consider to be not good enough. Uh, As part of Simon Week 2021, you're proposing uh, a solution to people becoming homeless uh, and uh, an amendment uh, to existing legislation, a bill that you're asking uh, TDs to support uh, which would uh, make it more difficult to evict people.
7: That's right, Michael. Firstly, uh, thanks very much for um, for having me on and thank you for, for putting that piece together. I think you've captured the the, the, the crux of a, of a lot of the issues that we're seeing. Um, obviously, homelessness is a, is a multivariate issue, so that there's no one silver bullet. But what we're proposing, is, as you, as you rightly say, is an amendment to the Residential Tenancies Act, which in essence will create a buffer for those people who are at risk of homelessness. So the proposal is that based on the experience of the Simon communities around the country. What we see is people who have been given a valid notice to quit, they are, you know, they're looking around, trying to find a place, uh, a new home for themselves where they can move into. Uh, they've no uh, perception or anticipation that they're going to experience homelessness. Like homelessness is it, it's something, is an experience people think isn't going to happen to them. But they're in the midst of a crisis of trying to get a place. Uh, it comes to the last week and they realise the depths of the crisis they're in and they're presenting to their local authority or presenting to the Simon community. And that gives us a very short window of time to support them uh, to find alternative accommodation and too many of those people end up in homelessness. So what we're proposing is if that person presents to their local authority, the local authority does an assessment with them and they decide, yes, this person is at imminent risk of homelessness, that triggers a a 12-week extension to their notice to quit. What that does is that, it doesn't stop there. What that does is then we put the wraparound support in the person, Mm -hmm. be it the Simon Community Threshold, Focus Ireland, the local authority themselves, to divert that, individual or family away from a homelessness and into an alternative accommodation. Um, Would that be
3: in all circumstances uh, where a notice of quit has been served, uh, where people are being asked to move out? Uh, It's one thing if they're being asked to move out because they're not paying their rent, because they can't afford to pay their rent. Uh, There are other circumstances uh, which landlords in particular might find objectionable uh, if uh, somebody was engaging in anti-social behaviour or drug dealing or something else like
7: that. Oh yeah, I mean there is a a balancing provision in it which, you know, which which deals with those kind of uh, sort of shall we say uh, anti-social behaviour issues, mm-hmm. where there is a risk to the community in the person or the or to the to the landlord in the, in the person remaining in the in the property. Um, so and it is only a short extension and it's only a once-off extension of the of up to twelve weeks. Mm-hmm. So um, what we're looking at here is providing the wraparound support uh, that people need to divert them, and th- this happens currently. Um, And at the moment, the best figures we have are for the Dublin region, where uh, between 55 and 60 percent of particularly families who present to the local authority are diverted into homeless, into uh, alternative accommodation. So what we're attempting to do with this is to push that number up to 70 or 80 percent. And we draw our inspiration from the previous 18 months when we had the moratorium on evictions and the moratorium on rent increases, Mm. as it was a really strong preventative measure. That meant that we saw a a significant fall in homelessness of 17 or 18% overall. Um, And we want to draw inspiration from that and say, okay, how can we replicate that? How can we get ahead of this homes crisis? And start to push those numbers down. Right now, while we wait for the housing stock to come online and that has a natural impact yeah. of slowing down the flow of people into homelessness. Yeah,
3: When you can't uh, evict people, people don't get evicted and if they don't get evicted, they don't end up homeless. Uh, but do they pay their rent?
7: Oh, absolutely. And that, that would obviously be the, the opposite. They would yeah. have to continue paying the rent. They would have to continue to honour their uh, their their tenancy agreement. You know, th- this is a situation where, I mean, there are occasions when um we have it that somebody might present who's gotten into arrears because basically they can't afford their rent. Uh, and what we do is uh, plug them into the local authority and the local authority supports them to a half payment, um, which the landlord takes on, and we're actually able to prevent the person from having to leave the home they're in. And that's a really positive mm. outcome. So, um, and, and that would likely be in that uh, that that total and perhaps there could be an opportunity to, to, uh, within that provision to do that kind of work as well but really what we're talking about here is the those efforts that are made to divert people into new accommodation. I,
3: I think uh, the quote that we heard from Orla Hegarty was very interesting and all the more interesting in the week that's in it given uh, that she said the mantra of supply, supply, supply has, a, has to stop and change into one of making housing affordable and that affordability is the key because there's a very good example of that in particular uh, as I say this week with student accommodation where there is the supply uh, but that supply has been taken uh, out of uh, the students uh, options because uh, that uh, housing has become unaffordable because of uh, the planning status uh, yeah
7: so, I think what Orla has tapped into, and I, and I think, I don't think she was make, in any way making the case mm. that we don't need to build more homes. No. But I think what she's saying is, as, as we look at our housing policy, what the, the, we have a number of levers that the government and local authorities can pull to try and uh, increase supply and, and, and uh, impact uh, the, the building sector. Uh, and that includes building themselves. And I think what she has been saying for some time, and, and the farming community would agree with her, and also have been saying it for some time, is that the crux of this, in terms of the sharp end, particularly when it comes to homelessness, is that if there isn't affordability, people are going to continue to be evicted, and they are going to end up in homelessness. Mm.
3: Uh, and the prices that are, are being asked are, are just beyond uh, the reach of so many people. And
7: Sorry to cut across you, but yeah. that, that came out, I mean, in some of the figures that uh, the, the, the Speaker's presented in that in that first panel um they were looking at in in the again uh, around the country were looking at maybe as only a third of the population could now afford their accommodation so we'll end up that mm. the, the state will be through things mechanisms like half and leasing mm. uh and such like will be accommodating or supporting people who are almost 66% of the population based mm. on incomes but we are now and the cost of housing.
3: Okay, uh, but that gives a, a false impression as well of uh, the extent of homelessness in this country. It's about 8,000 at the moment, but there's the hidden homeless uh, who appear not to be accounted for in this Housing for All plan uh, because they're the people who can't uh, afford to move out uh, and they have a roof over their heads, but they may be living with their parents or, or somebody else or sleeping on couches and couch yeah. surfing and the like.
7: That's a, that's a critically important point. I mean, one of the things I would say is for people who are perhaps listeners who are who are there, who are maybe a bit older, and their uh, thirty-year-old son is in their attic with their with their child with his partner and child, mm. trying to desperately trying to find a, a place. The reason that they're there and they're struggling it, are the same reasons that we have the level of homelessness that we have. It's all in the housing system, and mm. that's what needs to change. What Simon Week this year, as I say, there's no silver bullet. This is a multifaceted. Uh, problem Mm. but Simon this year is about the prevention because uh, those 8,000 people in homelessness isn't good enough and we need to start driving that down and one of the ways we can do that is focusing for now in the immediacy on prevention uh, and supporting people out of homelessness as quickly as we can Mm. but we do need to ramp up buildings and
3: Uh, uh, and affordability (laughs) and affordability, is that cost rental scheme in Balbriggan that the Minister was speaking about uh, uh, an example of how housing can be made affordable
7: yeah, I think, Costra, I mean, it, there are uh, concerns around uh, the costings that, that Mel Reynolds raised, but there are a number of ways of addressing that in, in the, in the time of Community's view that hopefully the, the housing agency and the department will be looking at. And that can be everything from looking at how we fund uh, these things, looking at land costs um, to make sure that they're available, those properties are available within... Uh, Price that uh, people that it is it's truly affordable.
3: Okay, we have to leave it there for the moment, Wayne. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Though that's Wayne Excellent. Stanley, who's head of policy and communications at uh, the Simon Communities of Ireland.
6: Michael Reid on LMFM.
3: Now, as you've been hearing over the course of uh, the last number of days, uh, there's a lot of concern about uh, the future of Our ladies Hospital in Navan. There's a lot of concern that the emergency department is about to close and be replaced by a medical assessment unit. And with that, we'll see the closure of the hospital's ICU beds. As a result, a number of TDs are hoping to have uh, the issue debated in the Dáil this evening. A protest is to take place outside of uh, the Dáil at noon on Thursday. And the Save Navin Hospital Group are planning to meet on Thursday evening. Let's uh, speak uh, to local TD. And Minister of State Damien English, who's on the line. Good morning, to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Hello,
4: Michael, thanks for having me on.
3: Have you been able to determine what the plan is?
4: To, yes, Michael. Just to be absolutely clear, there is no change happening in Avon Hospital. An Avon Hospital is open. A and E is open. ICU is open, and the hospital is as busy as ever. And I'm glad to have the chance to come on today to reassure people because I've had people ringing me over the weekend concerned that it was closing or something was changing and I want to absolutely confirm that it's not and there's no change and so just to be absolutely clear on that and there was a a statement made last week in the Dáil that the ICU was closed it it wasn't closed it was empty because there was no patients sick enough to be in it on that particular day and that's the facts and I'd rather people would check facts rather than spin them out for some other agenda so just to be clear and to reassure everybody Navin A&E is open ICU is open, orthopaedics is open, medical is open, the hospital and the staff there, we all know the job they do all the time, but more so over the last 18 months. It's a fabulous local asset and in my view, I've always said it, it's a major national asset because we know the quality of the care there and the orthopaedic and the coronary care. So it's not under threat. It's not closing. Yeah, and it is fair to say, Michael, and you touched on this in your programme yesterday, because I got a chance to listen back to you, that there is a document there for the last eight or nine years about future changes of Navin Hospital. I'm happy to go into all that within in a moment. But just to say, if ever any hospital group, any HSE or anybody wants to implement any change like that for Navin Hospital, it has to involve full conversation with everybody to make sure for all of us that we believe it's a better health service they're talking about. And that conversation will absolutely happen in public with you, with me and everybody else and should be led by all our doctors and our GPs and let them all feed into it. That's sometime in the distance, if if ever. And you and I, Michael, have had this conversation probably numerous times over the last 20 years. I have always got assurances for any minister that I've worked with in health, James Riley, Leo Barcliffe, Simon, Simon Harris, Stephen Donnelly, that there are no changes for now hospital because the capacity is not in the system to take our patients anywhere else. There's about 20,000 people go through now A&E, give or take, over the years. They can't fit in anywhere. The queues in Drogheda are up to 20, 20 hours sometimes in A&E. Same in branch with and other bases as well. Our patients can't fit in anywhere else. There's no other capacity put in place. And every minister, including Stephen Donnelly, has always said, if there's any change, it has to happen in a planned, coordinated way to deliver a better health service, not giant acute something else. I've always held this view, happy to discuss it with anybody but just to be absolutely clear um, ICU was not closed last week and is not closing and, a- and A&E is not closing uh, and I can't be any clearer than that.
3: Okay um, it's odd though, is it not uh, that uh, this has been going on since the 15th of September, it was raised in the doll last Thursday uh, The HSE was contacted uh, by this programme last Thursday, uh, as was uh, yourself and Minister Thomas Byrne. And this is the first time that we're being told that that is the situation.
4: So, a couple of things there, Michael. I I was sat in the door last week and Padder raised this task uh, and said that ICU was closed. It was completely not news to me. Like everybody else, I have always hear these rumours and whenever there's meetings or whenever the suits are in the hospital, rumours go round. That's the way it's been for 10, 15, 20 years. I've always dealt to check out any rumours, check out any information and bring back clarity. Rather, for whatever reason, told everybody that ICU last week was closed. Um, but to me, that's not really the truth. It's spinning out the facts for his own agenda and it was wrong. I do understand, uh, and because I, I, again, I, I couldn't come on Friday, but I, I did listen back to your program, uh And Thomas Bowen did send in a message to tell you it wasn't true. Now, I understand Thomas is an American and so on, but the message was sent true to you. The, H- the PQ that was answered, again, is the exact same answer that's been given for years. Mm. There is no change. But, Michael, it, it is. Well,
3: no, I think true. the PQ, the answer to the PQ and Fairness Minister did say uh, that uh, there was going to be an enhanced role for the matter. In terms of dealing with people who would have otherwise been seen in Navan, did it not? Yes, yeah,
4: so, and, so, yeah. and to be clear, Michael, to me, I am very proud of our relationship with the Matter. It's something that I was part of making sure it happened that we built up our relationship with the Matter Hospital. And a lot of the Matter staff come down and work in Navan on a weekly basis. Something that I think is a brilliant uh, service and asset to our county for the benefit of our health patients. That's something that I've worked on. It's something that's been developed over the last number of years. And that position. Has been the position now for seven or eight years okay. uh, that the Naval and the Matterhouse work together. And, uh, and every PQ that's been answered, because I've sat with minister after minister on this topic, it says the same thing. That, and they all talk about that um, sometime in the future there might need to be changes and rearrangement, re- reconfiguration of services. They've always said that. that that's the HSE policy for donkeys of years. Um, I've been at meeting after meeting after meeting, and I've always said, guys, uh, where's the capacity? Uh, it's important that the best service possible is for the patients that I represent in now and in the whole of County Week right throughout. And that's something I'll always hold that line, always hold that line. Okay. And I've always said to them, show me the better health service. And, right. and likewise, well, um, we've had some consultants who've come to the various hospital campaigns over the years and said the same that when it's appropriate, if someone can show us there's better, better services, a better change, their outcomes, that's something we have to look at and consider and in public, with in conversation with yourself on this programme, which is a great place mm-hmm. to do it, whenever that is in business. But there's no change imminent, there's no change happening overnight and the A&E is open and was open last week and so was ICU. I and mean, to be very clear on that. In
3: fairness, Minister, we know that they're open. The fear, is well, that, uh, well, the fear is that there's imminent closure and can you explain to us why the HSE has declined the opportunity to answer three very simple, specific questions. Uh, and, and,
4: that's a, and that's a fair point, Michael, and I think the HSE should, should absolutely come on. Uh, I mean, like I, I've had the benefit of, of talking to plenty of people in the health service over over all the years and mm. constant engagement around this. But just to be clear, Michael, I want to make something out to you. I know you have not said it's closing, but I had patients and people ringing me over the weekend who actually genuinely thought uh, that it was closed. And, and, and my fear is, and I've always said this for years in many mm. public statements, that we should never talk down our hospital because what's keeping okay. our hospital sorry Michael, I want to finish my please for one sec. What's keeping our hospital at the standard it's at and uh, where we've got reinvestment in the A and so on is because people are going there in their thousands and voting with their feet to use it. And that's important. So any misinformation that something is closed or closing is not good. I am happy to say to you yes Uh, The HSE, if a policy document there for the last 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. years, Mm -hmm. that they would like to see changes there. I'm not anyway any way denying that, but I've always said, as a local team... Well, there's a
3: HICWA report that goes back to 2010, and then there's that report to the smaller hospitals uh, framework. In 2013. uh, So that's eight years ago. Now, we asked the HSE, uh, will the emergency department hours in the hospital be reduced uh, in the first instance, and when is that plan to take effect? We also asked, will the emergency department close entirely and when? And we also asked, what is the future for ICU in the hospital? And the HSE said, we've nothing to say in response to those questions. But what, yeah, the sure. H- but, but what the HSE did say before that was that Navin has a vital role to play in the hospital group managing routine, urgent or planned care locally. But they said, more complex care will be managed in larger hospitals. And that means the matter in this instance. And they also said that they're developing an implementation plan for reconfiguration at Navin.
4: Yes, and, and Michael, can I confirm that's the position they've had now for nearly 10 years yes. or longer, mm. right? And but, and to be clear here, in the Small Hospital Framework, which was published in 2013, uh, so-called health experts, medical experts have put forward the policy for for the best care for patients that when it's appropriate uh, you can reconfigure services and so on. That's the policy they've had now since 2013 and well beyond that. Mm. I've always sat with all these people and said what's best for the patients I represent in Navan and County Mead and it's certainly not best that they join a queue someplace else and every minister has always said the same. Mm. If you want to reconfigure any service, and Stephen Donnelly said the same as this, Minister Harris said the same, James Riley have always said uh, to me in all my discussions and all my meetings on the hospital which I've had many of over the years that there's no capacity in the system for any changes there and and, and Michael I would th- I would agree with you on this I think the HSE absolutely um, need to discuss and our medics and all that publicly uh, any changes they want to envisage in the f- into the future and if ever they want to change anything I mean if ever That has to be fully discussed with all of us, with all the patients, with all the doctors, all the local GPs. I will take my guidance, my advice from all our local GPs and our local health personnel who treat and look after the patients of County Mead. Uh, And they have to be involved in any, if ever, any changes. But it's not untrue to say the HSE have had that similar policy now for 15 or 20 years. All I can say to you is, my job as a TD mm-hmm. is to make sure we have the best health service for people I represent. And that's the view I've always taken, and always will. And that's why, under, under my watch in government for the last seven or eight years, there's been no change, no negative change to average There's been positive investment, A&E investment, Tears have been in capital works as well, constantly bringing in more staff, more services, and I'll stand over that. And that's the future of an Avon hospital. Has it is a local and national asset and should always be seen that way.
3: Has the HSE confirmed this to you?
4: The HSE uh, have not confirmed any change to me uh, and and because uh, there, they there is no to change will and, no Dunley. Change. Has and has the H- Dunley has confirmed to me that there is no change and no change imminent?
3: The, the, the HSE has confirmed to you that there will be no change, is it?
4: They, they, so, Michael, to be clear, and I'll say this to you, the HSE have always said, since the Small Hospital Framework in 2013, that they envisaged some time in the future. Okay, so you
3: haven't had confirmation, Minister. So what what, so, what you're doing is opinionating, is it?
4: No, no, no. no. I, I spoke to the Minister, Stephen Donnelly, and he's mm. in charge. So the HSE, or for any for that matter, if they want to implement any change in Avon Hospital, it'll come to Stephen Donnelly. And he is the Minister, and he's in the government, that okay. I am part of. And he has said to me they h s e have brought no
3: they haven't spoken they, no they they haven't no. sp- they haven't spoken to the minister yet he in is, other words he
4: is fifteen months a minister for health the h s e have not put in front of him any changes of course any changes at navin hospital okay. and he is very familiar with the situation he knows the similar, similar situation now, when, like many other hospitals are are in, he knows the work that's mm. going on there, and he confirmed two powder and P2s and every other which way the the position that's been there.
3: for No, the he that, that, that's a, an interesting point. He didn't uh, because Perrotto being. Asked the tarnished last week, who said he'd ask Stephen Donnelly. Pater being told us yesterday that he didn't hear back from Stephen Donnelly. There was no response from the minister. No response from the tarnished subsequent to Thursday up to yesterday at least. Yes,
4: sorry, I, I'm referring to his, his his answer on the record.
3: That's right on the fifteenth of September. Now, yeah, uh, so yeah. so 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 the HSE Stephen Donnelly has told you that the HSE has not brought this to him, uh, but the HSE is telling us that they're developing a, a plan which would see. Uh, Navin managed routine urgent and planned care locally. More complex care will be carried out in the larger hospitals. And they also say that by uh, closing emergency and uh, closing the ICU beds in Navin, that it'll make Our ladies' Hospital safer, busier and more efficient for all and that w- it will further enhance linkages to the community, which they say is in line with Sláinte Care. Does that not worry you?
4: So, Michael, if, if it's helpful to you... Uh the HSE have told me that on many occasions for nearly 10 or 11 years. When I was first a government TD back in 2011, but in a few months of that, I sat with James Reilly as Minister for Health and the HSA team and many others, and they had a similar uh, approach at the time. And James Reilly, very clearly, and you played him on the programme last week, told them there's no capacity in the system to make any changes to Navan Hospital. Every minister has told them the same since. I have sat with the hospital group I've discussed, I've heard their plans outlined exactly what you said there. That's an approach, that's a belief they've had for years. I've sat with them and said well explain to me how all that benefits the patients I represent or how that helps the situation. Nobody has ever showed me a plan that enhances Makes better the health service that we have now, uh, that, and and whenever they do that, I will give it absolute consideration and I'll discuss it with you and everybody else. Okay. But they have not done that, and so if they ever want to see changes, Michael, that's like like we're doing business there, mm. which is their policy. Mm. But they can't implement it. If they ever wanted to do that, they would have to convince all of us patients, you, GPs, Everton, that that is a better health service. But to be clear, and I want to be very clear on this, there is no talk and no plans, and it's not true to say. ICU is closed, or closing tomorrow or next week or a and That's not happening. Uh, and if it ever happens, it's a long way off and a lot of discussions that happen before that to make sure we are getting a better health
3: service. Right. So, so I am
4: proud of the relationship with the matter. That's working extremely well, um, but that doesn't mean you can cut out other services unnecessarily. That's all stuff that can be looked at. How can you improve a health service? I'm open to that any day with anybody, um, but not um, I, I won't deal with rumours or something that's not actually true that's not good enough. I think that's not mm. acceptable. Well,
3: that's these the, rumours are coming from the staff, uh, and your contention, Minister, is that the staff got the jitters when they saw the suits in the hospital, and that's led to all of this fuss, is no,
4: that, no, that's not what I said. What I said was these rumours happen regularly around Avon Hospital. I'm 20 years involved in, in Avon Hospital and I'm involved in different campaigns, and I talk to the staff regularly, uh, and I know that they do get concerned. So did, I've no doubt...
3: Did you hear the, these rumours?
4: I, of course, I've, I've, I've often heard them, and I get them checked immediately, which mm. is exactly what I've done again. And I'm happy with confidence to reaffirm all this to you because I check out the situation. I don't run with misinformation and claim that something is closed. I don't do that. That's not my yeah, job. My I'm not job sure that even.
3: anybody has done that. I think people have been asking questions in fairness to everybody.
4: I, I think, Michael, let's be fair now. For someone to publicly say mm. that ICU is closed sends off shockwaves right throughout the system and it's not fair to people to do that. I have no problem having an honest, straightforward debate, discussion about the hospital in Avon and the facts and figures and do mm. all that. I've talked to I've discussed with you many, many times, but I'll always work with the facts. I think it's wrong to give out a false impression. That's not fair to anybody. People are genuinely concerned and worried about, A, the, the, the health service they get, but B, people who work in the hospital and they always always need to know that, that our hospital is valued and important and is staying open and will always be open and will always provide a top-class service. I think it's unfair. Uh, and that. And, and, and look, at, yes, rumours take off and you deal mm. with them and put them to bed and that's why I'm happy to have the chance to do that here today with you.
3: Okay, and uh, would you contend then that a, a topical issues motion uh, would be a, a waste of time? Uh, because that's uh, what's intended in the doll this evening, it's, isn't it?
4: It's it's never a waste of time to to, to discuss and have a discussion around our health services. So never,
3: mm. I value all so of that. So you you that. support that? I do I you?
4: I have no issue with that whatsoever, and I hope to be there because it'll bring out again the facts, mm. and we can confirm it. So I have no issue with that whatsoever.
3: You're, are you, so you're supporting that motion.
4: It's it's a it's a it's a topical debate for discussion. Yeah. I hope to be able to be there. Yeah, yeah. you're
3: supporting you're yeah. supporting it being tabled. Uh, and in that, charity, and is no issue with that whatsoever. At, okay, uh, yeah, positive development. Uh, and what about the protest on Thursday or the Save Navan Hospital meeting on Thursday?
4: I don't see any need for a protest. People want to protest. That's fine. I don't see any need because I'm telling you now that there was no change coming to Navan Hospital. But that's absolutely no fine other politicians like to leave protests like to do that that's totally up to them they can do their job their way I'll do mine the way I've always done it which is direct engagement with the Minister of Health to get reassurances of the of our hospital and the importance of that and the, the decision makers that's that's fine in relation to the Save Hospital and campaigns I've been at many of those meetings over the years some of them are productive some of them are not uh, I'm in uh, I think I'm in, in Limerick yeah. or Clare on Thursday night. I hope to make it back in time to join that meeting absolutely yeah. because I've always like and at one stage I would have chaired those meetings myself and I've always had a cross-party approach. Very important that we do that, but also that we focus on the facts and what's the best for our patients and uh, that we represent. That's my job Mm. and I will always do that.
3: Did you ask uh, Minister Donnelly uh, if he would seek an update from the HSE?
4: Well, of course I did, but I don't have to because Minister Donnelly is the boss and he said there's no change, there's nothing happening, it's not on his desk. So he's the boss and he's different. reaffirmed in, in his answers, in his PQ answers no. uh, and I spoke to no. him directly, he's reaffirmed the exact same position that the last three health ministers have had that I've worked closely no. with uh, and I'm happy to do that. So he, if, if there's ever to be any change in Avon Hospital, it has to come through Stephen Downey as the Department of health. Um, but absolutely, I, I've no problem uh, discussing this with the HSE again and, and, I'll, and I'll seek weakness to reaffirm no. all this, but Stephen Downey's the boss and I, I'm happy to take is because well the prepared, plan hasn't has, changed
3: the plan hasn't changed so the HSE you would expect would be at work trying to implement uh, the plan which is now 8 years old uh, and then when the plan is finalised th- that they would bring it to the minister's desk at that stage. Surely be to God that would be the sequence of events. I mean the minister mm-hmm. has a huge portfolio and he, he couldn't be micromanaging everything on that scale uh, so uh, it, it's quite possible that there is work because the HSE says there is work uh, so, that is say, underway, that they're developing yeah, I, I, a plan
4: and like that, that's a very fair question. And, and what, I, what I'll say to you is the plan that was set out in that document in 2013, uh, into, uh, you know, it, it involved, if that was ever to happen, it would involve in a lot of investment in building up services and capacity all around us. Mm. In Bantertown and in Drogheda and Nav and the matter to be able to absorb the number of patients who go through and and e mm. you, you and I can clearly see mm. that investment has not happened. We're nowhere near that. So you can have all the plans on paper you want, which might sound, somebody might argue that, mm. they, are, that they will deliver a better service. But mm. until everybody can see capacity in place, services in place, including extra resources in the government service, no change can happen. Mm. Now, none of that has happened. And I've, I've sat with the hospital group. I've done all this over the years. I've discussed all this with them and they've never been able to show me an investment plan to deliver all this and make it happen. So Mm. there's no plan before. It can't happen. And that's what the health ministers have repeatedly
3: said. But you do understand that it's been very hard to understand what the HSE has been communicating or not communicating and and that it hasn't. You said yourself uh, they should be answering the questions. Uh, I mean there's very straightforward questions that have been put to the HSE, about the emergency department? Uh, is it going to close at night? Is it going to close entirely? And what is the future for ICU? Uh, should they not? I mean, you said earlier on uh, that they should issue a statement in relation to those questions. Would you ask them to do that, Minister?
4: Uh, Michael, I, I certainly will. And, and you were right to have asked those questions. And I compliment you on the programme for doing that. Absolutely. Uh, my job is, of course, to ask them, but also to ask the boss uh, mm. which is Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, and I've asked him that, right? As yeah. was Tom was born, as was Jim Castle, we've all done and, that. And, and you that agree
3: well. that it, it could be happening but without the knowledge of the Minister because that is the policy, the accepted policy by government. Uh, no,
4: no to, to be clear, I, I, I can't be any more black and white on this. Nothing can happen in changes to Navin Hospital, ICU, A&E, or any of the services there uh, unless Stephen Donnelly and the government... Agree to it. Yes, We're not but, but, to but the it. HSE no could be working. But the is.
3: HSE could very well be working on a, a plan uh, to put before the minister because everybody, it seems, agrees that Navin is not safe.
4: Uh, Michael, no, hold on, I mean, that that's a, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's not a statement that I would agree with at all. And um, if I felt that, there'd have to be changes. James Riley, no.
3: Tony O'Brien. I don't know about Stephen Donnelly, but the HSE, uh, H- the, the HSE the says that the idea of this is to make the, the hospital safer.
4: No, just to be honest, you know, Michael, I, I, I've never heard James Whitey say that no, I mean, Hospital wasn't safe. What they said was uh, in the in, in the in the 2013 Hospital Framework Document, uh, which was different to the Hickory report, which said that it will recommend the changes in a lot of A and E's. It ours didn't happen because we're at a different level of an A and E. The Small Hospital Framework said about the overall approach and how to use our hospitals, small and large, to make everything safe and to give the best patient outcome and the best services. That's very different who's saying Navin Hospital is not safe. And I wouldn't like you saying that, Michael. Sorry, I, I don't know where you're getting that from. Well, Tony
3: O'Brien said it wasn't safe when he was the CEO well, of the HSC. Tony
4: O'Brien is uh, not the CEO was. of the HSC. I don't deal with Tony O'Brien, but mm. that's fine if you mm. want. I'm not going mm. to, you know, that's up to you. But I'm not saying that at all. Mm. What I'm saying to you is my job as a TD for the county and for the town of Navin is to make sure we have the best health service for our patients. Okay. And, I've, and I've always said, Michael, to you before, or to many others, and I've never hosted this, Whenever somebody comes to me and shows me and tells me there's a better health service and there's a better way to doing this, and the local GPs and everybody else agrees with that, then that's something we have to discuss and accept and talk about.
3: All right. Minister, well, long, I, I've right. run out of time. I'm, I'm sorry. I have to go to headlines, and I'm, I apologise for cutting you off. But I, it's uh, just uh, I don't have any option. I have run out of time. That, that's, fine, that's fine. So, that's th- fine. Thank you Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Minister of State Damien English, who's Finigal TD for Mead West.
6: Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. Now in two weeks from uh, today uh, the government will announce uh, the budget for 2022. Hairdressers will be hoping that uh, there will be some support for the sector. One of the hardest hit sectors as a result of uh, the pandemic they claim and uh, they have made a pre-budget submission with the help of economist Jim Power who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you Jim Power and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've helped the Irish Hairdressers Federation with this submission, but it's unusual, I think, and probably tells its own story that hairdressers are making a pre-budget submission.
8: Uh, yes, <clears throat> excuse me, it is. I mean, as we know, looking around the country, on the streets of our villages and towns and cities, the hairdresser and the barber, you know, they occupy a position of prominence and they're a key part of the landscape. Um, they have been one of the sectors most exposed to COVID restrictions over the last 18 months. They've been shut down for long periods. They've been subject to significant restrictions. And um, obviously, they're now back on track. But coming into um, you know the post-COVID environment, a lot of those businesses were left with significant legacies of debt, um, bank interest charges put on hold, revenue liabilities put on hold. So there's a significant debt legacy, which is going to make life difficult and challenging over the next 12, 18 months. And um, it's that's the sort of backdrop for the preparation of a, pre-budget submission for the hairdressers as you say, Hmm. it's probably not something we see every year but in the current circumstances the sector feels pretty pressurised and wants to get as much support as possible. Indeed, as do um, many other small businesses that were most exposed to COVID lockdown.
3: Are they back on track? Uh, Because I I thought the problems they have are similar to maybe a, a lot of other small businesses but compounded by other factors, like we all developed different hairstyles or different ways of cutting our hair. Uh, Particularly men are cutting their own hair. Women are are growing their hair, perhaps. Uh, But there's also the nixer uh, end of it uh, as well, uh, and that during lockdowns, hairdressers were cutting people's hair at home, and that continues to some extent.
8: Uh, Yes, it does, actually. And I did a piece of work on the sector about three years ago at this stage, and I estimate at that stage, That the informal economy was equivalent to around 30 to 40% of the turnover of the legitimate hairdressing economy. So the the Nixer thing and the informal economy was always part of this sector, but it has been exacerbated by COVID 19 because, as you described there, uh, people's habits have changed. You know, people are cutting their own hair. Um, they're going to friends to get their hair cut. Some people have let the hair grow, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So uh, that does compound the problem. And of course, um, a lot of people would have discovered during COVID um, people operating in the informal economy and they'd stick with them. So that is at the expense of the legitimate sector because the legitimate sector, you know, had to comply with regulations, it had to pay tax and so on. And they're now increasingly competing with a part of the sector uh, that doesn't pay tax or that is not subject Mm. to regulation. So, uh, and of course, from the Revenue Commission's perspective, there is also a significant loss of revenue as a result of that. So, yeah, the informal economy just does compound the difficulties facing the sector at the moment. And we're still not back
3: to normal. I mean, we're still not completely out of uh, the restrictions. Uh, And uh, I know that nightlife is one of uh, the problems uh, that uh, the sector will cite in terms of uh, why they're seeing a drop in business. And I suppose that people aren't going to nightclubs or or socialising in the way that they used to. They're not getting dolled up in the way that they used to, and that includes hairdos.
8: Well, it it certainly does. that. people aren't going out and socialising, which is the case still, uh, they're not going getting the hair done but also um, people working from home uh the sort of less requirement to be looking well in the morning <laughs> Very true, so they're yeah, also, yeah. you know, so th- mm. there's a whole myriad of factors mm. I mean you, you could we're, we're talking about the hairdressing sector at the moment in relation to COVID but actually the implications that we're now seeing for so many different sectors of the economy from COVID is quite extraordinary uh, and this legacy will take some time to work through so that's why i think it's really important for a sector like the hairdressing sector that the government continues to recognize these difficulties um, and continues to provide support until they are firmly back on track um you know later mm. in 2022
3: one hopes okay and to tell us uh what the sector would hope to hear on budget day
8: well, um, one of the very positive things that happened last year was that on the first of November, twenty twenty, until the first of September, twenty two, the VAT rate for the sector was, and the hospitality sector as well, was cut from thirteen and a half to nine percent. Um, the sector would like to see nine percent becoming permanently embedded, um, and, and it, you know that that would definitely, <coughs> excuse me, help mm-hmm. cash flow, help their competitiveness. Um, An issue for the sector back in March, another issue back in March 2019, um, training rates for um, trainees in the hairdressing sector were abolished. So hairdressers taking on trainees were then um, obliged to pay higher wages, uh, pretty much the minimum wage or higher, depending on the category. So that acted as a significant disincentive for hairdressers taking on Trainees, And as a consequence of that, we've seen less demand for trainees and we're now starting to see staff shortages in the legitimate sector. Um, There's there's also a huge issue around um, financial support to make hairdressing a sort of a viable career Mm. with professional recognition, professional qualification and so on. So um, the, the hairdressers would be looking for some support from government to help upskill the sector and to make it um, an attractive occupation for people to enter into. What and, would and that
3: mean in terms of pay scales because it's generally considered to be a, a low paid sector isn't it?
8: Well at at the trainee end um, you know when people are doing their apprenticeships and so on um, as is the case in most sectors, wage rates are pretty low. But then if you, you know, for hairdressers and so on, mm. with a bit of experience, uh, the wages increase quite significantly. Um, but um, yeah, so that that that's, it, it's not sort of as low paid as is the general perception, but there are parts of it, yeah. But um, for fully trained um, hairdressers working in good establishments, yeah, um, the wage rates are are, are significantly better.
3: Mm, and that is uh, for hairdressers rather than barbers. I uh, take the money is in cutting women's hair because the cost yes. of getting a haircut is far more expensive, uh, I think, as all of us know.
8: Uh, yeah, but but the, the men's barber takes a, a lot shorter. You know, five minutes we get it all off. Right. Whereas uh, the, the female <laughs> takes significantly longer. That's right. my experience.
3: As a business model, though, uh, I mean, is the money not in women's hair?
8: Of course it is. I know. I was only joking. It it is, of course, because um, with the hair products and all that, that's where the margins are really. Yes. So Mm -hmm. as a business model, very definitely, um, hairdressing is the lucrative end of the market. Mm. Potentially,
3: uh, And far more difficult, uh, I think, uh, to cut. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, your joke uh, was valid to a large extent. It is far more difficult to cut uh, some women's hairstyles than it is uh, a lot of men's hairstyles. Uh, and uh, the sector looking for a- an apprenticeship scheme uh, to encourage people into the sector uh, and to teach them those skills.
8: Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's absolutely the case because um, many sectors are now... Discovering, you know, serious difficulty in recruiting staff post-COVID. Particularly, it was an issue before COVID, but it's a much worse issue now. And um, as I say, what what we have to try and do, you know, not everybody is going to go to third level um, education and. get get a master's or a degree. Not everybody. Some people, you know, there has to be an outlet for those who don't want to do that. But to make that outlet attractive in areas like hairdressing, you need to make sure there is a structured apprenticeship scheme in place and that when people enter the sector, there is a career path. They will end up with a qualification that actually can travel across the world. And progress is being made, you know, apprenticeship schemes are being developed but it does need to be accelerated and it does need to be um, more widespread across the sector because what 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 the sector wants to do, I was going to say we, I'm not in the sector, but what mm-hmm. the sector wants to do really is to uh, create as professional an image as possible that makes it an attractive career choice for people who want to go that route.
3: Mm. And I, I take it... Uh the fewer hairdressers there are, the more expensive it uh, becomes to get your hair cut, uh, which is why it might be of interest to all of us uh, to see uh, support in pl- place. Uh, the two main things uh, that uh, you're looking for is uh, that VAT rate of 9% and an extension to the wage subsidy scheme, is it?
8: Uh, yes, absolutely. The um, the wage subsidy scheme should be... I think extended out to the end of 2022 Um, and at the moment to qualify for the EWSS you need to have your turnover down by 30 percent or more and I think as those businesses come back you know the reduction turnover will be less than that so I think a 15 percent threshold uh, would now be more appropriate as we emerge from COVID so basically what I'm saying is that over the next 12 months as hopefully the economy and the sector return to normality, that the EWSS can be gradually um, phased down. But it does need to remain in place because, as I said at the beginning of the interview, one of the issues for businesses like hairdressers is this legacy of debt they have been left with as a result of COVID-19. So um, they will need as much support as possible to work through that legacy of debt. And, you know, the same thing applies to business in the hospitality sector, mm. non-essential retail and so on. Um, and, and I think there is a sort of a moral and economic obligation here because these were the sectors that were most exposed to the restrictions that were in place to protect the health of the nation.
3: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You're yeah, very this welcome, morning. thank you. Uh, Jim Power, economist, uh, who has uh, been helping uh, the Irish Hairdressers Federation put uh, their pre-budget submission together. An unusual uh, pre-budget submission, if ever there was, and very much a sign of uh, the times, the pandemic and uh, the lockdown and uh, the challenges that small businesses in this country and I'm sure elsewhere have faced for that matter some comments now and a lot of comments coming to us uh, and thanks to everybody in touch with us uh, Siobhan was in touch with us uh, I think yesterday uh, on WhatsApp uh, and uh, an interesting uh, comment uh, from uh, Siobhan because we were listening to the thornished uh, Leo Radger talk uh, about tax cuts which he said weren't tax cuts uh, because somebody on €40,000 might get an increase of €800 euro next year but uh, if they didn't cut the tax that was due on that 800, they'd only get 400 to take home. So the tanisha was saying that if they cut the tax it wouldn't be a tax cut, it would be tax indi- indexation. I know it's stupid. Uh, it would be tax indexation so that they could take home maybe 650 out of the 800 instead of 400. Uh, uh, Siobhan then uh, in touch with us saying does the I actually think that €40,000 is the average wage. He's living in a different world, if so. Thank you, indeed. Uh, I think the average industrial wage in the country at the moment is in around €38,000, uh, but uh, of course, that takes into account those who are earning 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 150, 200,000 euro a, a year, and then they come up with the average somewhere in the middle of it all. Uh, but only one fifth of uh, the people who are working in this country are on the higher rate of tax that the Taunus was referring to, which uh, is a little bit more than 33, 34,000 around that mark. Paul in touch with us uh, following our interview with Minister Damien English and Paul says if Minister English feels so confident that there will be no changes for our ladies, why on earth will the HS simply not come out and say that? Why are they leaving it to a government minister to do the talking for them? I think that's a valid question Paul. Uh, Speaking to Minister English, I think Minister English thinks that's a valid question. And um, perhaps the HSE uh, will come out with uh, more information or respond uh, to the very simple questions uh, that were put to them. Uh, The Minister said he'd asked them to do that. Uh, An email comes to us from Theresa Riley. She says, Dear Michael, I've been listening to Damien English for decades now and I've always wondered uh, about uh, some of uh, the statements uh, that are made after all of these years Uh, His uh, political training and uh, experience uh, have uh, made me wonder. Uh, She is uh, wondering now, uh, would she believe anything that has to be said about Navin Hospital? Uh, It's long past time uh, that uh, she's uh, believed anything that that, uh, she's been hearing from uh, some politicians. Thanks, Theresa, for your email to the programme. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us about Jim Power and he says I hope uh, the hairdressers don't get a soft landing like uh, the soft landing that was predicted during the financial crisis Uh, Ronnie Mcgrain in touch with us about the interview with the Minister and Ronnie says Damien English spoke plain English can you not understand English? Thank you, Roddy. Thanks very much indeed. I think the Minister did speak uh, plain English and I think he was very clear in what he was saying, which was that he believes uh, that there is no threat to the emergency department or the ICU status in Our ladies' Hospital in Navan. It'll be interesting to hear the reaction to that, particularly from the hospital, from the people working in the hospital who raise concerns with local representatives, including the Minister. Okay. Uh, thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today.
6: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: I believe I can fly. I, I think Or Kelly may be in his prison cell, wishing that was true. Uh, it's not true, uh, and it seems that a lot of the things he's been saying have not been true either. Uh, and I don't think we'll be hearing, I believe, I uh, can fly, I hope we won't be hearing, I believe, uh, I can fly on the radio ever again, in the same way that we don't hear Gary Glitter uh, on the radio, uh, and in the same way that we probably should never hear Michael Jackson on the radio. Uh, but Or Kelly has been convicted of some very serious crimes.
6: There's no doubt about it that the
9: challenges people have...
3: I beg your pardon. We should be able to hear now from uh, the prosecutor. This is uh, Gloria Alfred.
9: Today, R. Kelly has been convicted of very serious federal crimes. Mr. Kelly, who once described himself as a, quote, genius, end quote, to one of my clients who testified, is nothing but a convicted felon. I attended this trial because I represent three of the six victims for whom charges were filed in this case and who testified at this trial. In addition, I represent two other key witnesses who testified and another victim, Jane Doe, number nine, who was prepared to testify, but was not called to testify. I have been practicing law for 47 years. During this time, I have pursued many sexual predators who have committed crimes against women and children. Of all the predators that I have pursued, however, Mr. Kelly is the worst for many reasons. First, he used the power of his celebrity to recruit vulnerable underage girls for the purpose of sexually abusing them. These were not May-October relationships, which is what his defense attorney wanted the jury to believe. These were crimes against children and some adults. Second, he used the power of his business enterprise and many of his inner circle employees to assist him and enable him in his plan and his scheme to lure his victims to him, isolate them, intimidate them, control them, indoctrinate them, punish them, shame them, and humiliate them targeting them, recruiting them, isolating them from their family and friends, forcing them to follow his abusive rules in order to control them, punishing them if they did not follow his rules to the letter, hitting them, threatening them, sexually assaulting them, giving many of them genital herpes, and victimizing them by recording many of them on child pornography tapes, is not treating them like gold. R. Kelly thought that he could get away with all of this, but he didn't. Because despite the fact that he thought he could control all of his victims, he was wrong. Many of his victims had the courage to speak up and tell their truth (laughs) under oath in a court of law. I am very proud of my clients who agreed to testify in this case. I thank them for trusting me, law enforcement, and the jury to find the truth. My clients who testified fought through their fear and relived their painful experiences with R. Kelly and his enablers. R. Kelly's victims handled themselves with dignity and survived intense cross-examination by the defense. Because of their courage and the outstanding work of federal agents and prosecutors in this case, justice has been done. Let this be a message to other celebrities who also use their fame to prey on their fans, and others who are unfortunate enough to come into contact with them. You're also likely to face serious consequences for your criminal conduct. The issue is not if the law will catch up to you. The only question is when.
3: And so if, uh, that's up. Uh, that's the case. Uh, that's the AG Gloria Alred uh, who helped uh, to prosecute that monster that uh, is R Kelly, as we understand it now. Thanks to Isabel, who was in touch with us today about Our ladies' Hospital. Isabel says I- I- Isabel says all public representatives in County Meath should be ashamed of themselves if they allow the HSE to go forward with plans to downgrade the hospital. They should be fighting tooth and nail for Navin and protect it at all costs. Isabel says her mother was in Our Lady's a few months back and the level of care she received was first class and her treatment was excellent. Meath is a big county with an ever-increasing population and we deserve to have our own hospital to service the county. Thanks, Isabel, for that. Mary, thank you for your call as well. And she says she'd like to believe what Damien English was saying about the future of the hospital being secure. But unfortunately, she says, the deafening silence from the HSE does not fill her with confidence. Thank you indeed uh, for that uh, as well. And perhaps uh, we'll hear from the HSE later, following the comments from the minister and the minister saying that he would ask the HSE to bring some clarity to the situation. Uh, And the minister was very clear in what he had to say. There is no threat to the emergency department. There is no threat to ICU. Paddy said, keep that tape. You might need it later. (laughs) Thanks uh, for that. John in touch saying, uh, would that statement from Damien English be like the one uh, we heard from Noel Dempsey when he said the IMF were not coming to town? Oh, we have uh, some cynical listeners, don't we? Thank you indeed. Uh, somebody in touch with us saying, I, I know somebody who's waiting to see a doctor in the hospital in Navin since last January. What's the delay? Thanks uh, for asking. Thanks for your text, for that matter. Uh, it's an awful long time, an awful long time to be waiting. Uh, I doubt that it has anything to do with what we're talking about here. Uh, and we do know that there's 907,000 people waiting on a hospital appointment and that the consultants are saying that it'll take 14 years to get on top of it, given the extent of the problem as it stands. Jeremy Culloch, in touch with us, uh, saying uh, that uh, he doesn't have the patience to be listening to politicians saying, let me make it clear or let's be clear. Do they all go to play school to learn that jargon? Um, he says maybe they should do a Mrs. Brown uh thanks uh, for that chair um we'd uh, another text uh, then from somebody He says the whole thing is a stunt uh, a, a stunt by pe tobin he's always saying that our lady's hospital is going to close he's the one that's going on and on creating rumors he should get a life <laughs> Thank you indeed uh for that uh particular comment. Uh, to us uh, this morning and and indeed uh, for your text somebody else uh, in touch saying uh, the government should prioritise the energy crisis in the budget not have a situation that a person tosses a coin into a metre what will they do with their pension heat or eat this week will be a dilemma for many the so called grey brigade of pensioners uh, could give a few of uh, these politicians some food for thought uh, and maybe they will come the next election, says our listener. Uh, Claire in County Mead says, our government are pushing our ordinary and low paid out of all housing. Why wouldn't the prices and rents skyrocket? Look what our government uh, uh, are doing and how rich those politicians are. I hope uh, you check the Irish Independent on Saturday uh, thank you, uh, who published uh, a wealth list of uh, and how wealthy some of uh, the politicians are. Thank you indeed, Claire, uh, for your text to the programme. Thanks indeed to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk uh, to Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Fingal and spokesperson on workers' rights, enterprise, uh, trade and employment uh, about what appears almost certain to be another bank holiday and indeed possibly more in terms of recognizing the work uh, that many did especially frontline workers uh, in terms of getting us uh, through the pandemic good morning to you louise and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program this morning there will be another public holiday it seems Uh, would you uh, feel that that's an appropriate thing to do to mark the pandemic
6: But I think the public holiday is something Sinn Féin has been calling for for a while. Um, And I think, you know, quite apart from the pandemic, we need to recognise that we're actually out of step with our European neighbours in terms of the number of public holidays that we have. So, I mean, it's a long time now since we've been calling for an additional public holiday to remember uh, 1916. And I think it, it is a good move uh, on behalf of the government, albeit um, a little belatedly, but I think it is, uh, it is a welcome move uh, that they're considering now bank holiday. I think it would be better mm-hmm. if they had a quick and focused discussion in private and then we're able to come out and, and announce an actual plan because I think this kind of drip seed and it might be a bank holiday and it might be something else. Mm. And, you know, we have the shock, I think, or the Tawnish on the one hand, saying that the plans are at a very advanced level. And yet we, we, we hear kind of contradictory uh, leaks coming from uh, from around the government. So I think it's, it's good that they now seem to be finally after probably too long, but you are looking at something we can do about that mm. now.
3: Do they hear uh, that a bank holiday could be worth 20 million to hospitality?
6: Yes, Right. Um, why don't we have one why- every week? <laughs> well, I'm a big champion of the four-day week, Michael. So <laughs> I think that would be a very good idea, mm. uh, I, and I think if we were able to to look at, you know, and and we've talked about this before a couple of times. Uh, Sinn Féin had proposed a voucher scheme uh, to stimulate the economy and to uh, and, and to put some money back in people's pockets so that there's a pandemic dividend, if you will, for for everybody. Mm. Um, a similar scheme has been launched in the north um, yesterday, and I think that is also a, a very that, that would also be a very positive thing to say to people well look you know we're, we're going to give people the capacity to put money back in the economy because we're not talking about massive sums of money but we are talking about money that will be spent locally so I want to see you know people being able to go and shop in Balbriggan, and Scarys and Swords and Rush and Dusk and all of the local towns in my area that they will have you know a few bob in their back pocket to do it and I think the government should look very very seriously at it. They did try to bring in a type of a voucher scheme it, it didn't work it was far too convoluted um, I think they've taken a much simpler approach in the north and I'd like to Mm. see that mirrored down here uh, as a
3: recognition. It's very popular in the north the website crashed I think didn't it?
6: (laughs) <laughs> that was yes, and I mm. I think it's back up and running now. But yeah. again that was just due to due to the, the level of, of demand, which is people, a good yeah. sign It yeah. shows people are yeah. buying into it yeah. as opposed to the, the government scheme which people didn't buy into because the, the you know um, the, the, the scheme brought forward by Pascal Dunague and Michael McGrath just didn't work. Um, it wasn't it wasn't user friendly in any way, shape or form and it only benefited kind of high earners and, and people who had uh, who were paying tax. There was nothing in mm. it for low income workers. So I'd like to see something that benefited everybody and I know that That's not always the focus of this government, but I think they should really look at at a scheme that will uh, will benefit absolutely everybody.
3: All right, uh, we'll talk about frontline workers maybe in a a minute, but uh, let's talk about the idea of a bank holiday for everybody. Uh, Should it be tied in with the pandemic to commemorate what we've been through or, or not, do you think?
6: I think it's a good idea to have an additional bank holiday, as I've Mm, said, we're behind, uh, you know, we're about three bank holidays or public holidays behind everybody
3: else. I just don't, Um, I really don't like the idea of it being uh, something to commemorate uh, the pandemic uh, because there's an awful lot of people who have gone through very hard times and, you know, uh, they'll be looking at empty chairs uh, come the birthdays and the Christmas and all of those other occasions uh, and then you get to the bank holiday and it's another reminder or another day to mark the loss of that person when perhaps people are out celebrating as they would be on St. Patrick's Day
6: I don't think it'd be like that, though. In fairness, a I bank
3: holidays—a bank holiday—it's going to generate. It's going to generate, oh, it going to generate exactly. twenty million for hospitality, isn't it? But not, not every, yeah, but not it, every you know? bank holiday yeah. is
6: like St. Patrick's Day,
3: though. No, we I know, but you might—you might you I might I be it be a long weekend, and people be off on their holidays, type yeah. of thing.
6: Yeah. No, no, exactly. And I think we need to, to look sensitively at how we, we deal with it, because like collectively, we have been through a very traumatic experience. That's before we even get into the experience of our our frontline workers. But but collectively, those of us who were not on on the front line and uh, have been through a very traumatic experience, and I wouldn't. Like to see the government do anything that would be offensive to people, especially those who, who've lost loved ones. And I'm thinking of people in in my own family, um, you know, who who won't be with us um, this Christmas and and who weren't with us last Christmas and and people who we lost to COVID. I think there has to be a sensitive remembrance. And I do think, you know, I mean, we have a fantastic president, John Hare and Michael D Higgins. I think he's a good man for uh, for these occasions. And I don't think it necessarily has to be like St Patrick's Day, but I do think it's important that we would uh, sensitively. Uh, remember those people and and also acknowledge what we have come through. Uh, You know we've all been through a a sort of a collective trauma um, and I think it would be good to Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that and as I've said we are out of step with other uh, European countries in terms of the number of public holidays that we have so if we're going to begin the process of catching up I think this is a good place to start.
3: When should it be?
6: now uh, we had looked for uh, for a bank <laughs> yeah, holiday in April to commemorate uh, 1916 um, my understanding is the government have said it might be before the end of the year but this is a thing that's so infuriating is that they, they floated this idea they say that the work is that the preparation is underway and a lot of the work is done but then they don't come out and say so we the tarniister has announced that he thinks it's going to be before the end of the year uh, I've had I've heard speculation about November but I would like to just see the government come out today and make a definitive announcement and, and let us know Know what it is uh, that they are thinking uh, and, and what it, when it is that they think we should have this additional day's uh, mm. the public holiday.
3: Okay, um, The end of the year puts it uh, in the winter season which isn't good for hospitality. April uh, might work uh, in, in that sense. Uh, July seems the obvious uh, time if you want to give a, a boost to that sector
6: absolutely and but this again is is one uh that the government are going to have to come out and tell us They're, they're saying they've done a huge amount of research into it that their plans are at a very advanced stage so let them let them come out and tell us what it is that they're going to do um so that we can have a look at it but i do think you know it can't just be about stimulating the economy although that's really really important i think it should coincide with the issuing of uh of vouchers and we are going to keep putting the pressure on the government to adopt a similar scheme to that which was rolled out in the north and i think that would be you know to to Coincide yeah. those two. But I think also it has to be uh, you know, a time for sensitive um reflection. And I think that, that, that can be done and I think a bit of effort yeah. needs to be put into making sure it's done right.
3: Yeah, and the vouchers what you're saying a hundred euro for children and two hundred for adults. That was the original yeah. proposal, wasn't it?
6: that was our proposal, yes, and, uh, and I think that's, a, that's a, a good idea in as much as it's, uh, it's equal for everybody, mm. so everybody gets a, you know, everybody gets a chance to, uh, to have that additional bonus, but I also think, you know, the government accepted that the, there is uh, a merit in uh, a stimulus and they accepted that it should be done, they just didn't have the, the capability to do it right, but I think now that they've seen it being done in, uh, you know, in other places and being done right, mm. that they might be able to just learn a bit and adopt that. Uh, and, how, and, how,
3: be a good idea. How would it work? I mean, would I be able to go into a coffee shop and spend a fiver on a cup of coffee uh, or go into a hotel and spend a hundred euro on a hotel room? Or
6: Yes, uh, that's, that's exactly how it works. It's uh, We had envisaged it on um, like a, a one for all type mm. card and, uh, you know, we would be obviously encouraging people to spend it locally, to spend it in their local economy. Right,
3: okay. And regardless of the amount uh, and uh, they uh, but the business that you're spending the money in would be able to claim it back then from some central source
6: and and I think it, it's you know the, like that's the key to it is I mean we're not we're not talking about massive amounts of, of mm. money necessarily, but it acts as a stimulus. But it also means that you know people who have um, you know I mean people burn through their savings. And I know that some people saved money during the pandemic, but others burn through their savings. And you know if you want to bring the kids out uh, for a treat, I heard people talking about the cinemas uh, reopening. Uh, you know I think it's it's up to seventy or eighty percent capacity now, which is brilliant. Um, I'm actually really dying to get back to the cinema myself Mm -hmm. and you know it would be nice to be able to bring the kids and you know and, and treat them to some popcorn ice creams whatever else and i think that way you know you're keeping you're investing in local jobs and you're keeping the money local and i think that's going to be very important i think we all learned a really valuable lesson about how important it is to shop local and how important our local businesses and local shops are during the pandemic and i think it would be nice to be able to give something back
3: okay so talk to me about the frontline workers should the nurses get 10 days? additional leave and should there be additional leave of that sort or a unique a, a deal uh, that uh would be equal to that for all frontline workers and what is a, a frontline worker is, is the supermarket worker a frontline worker is the bus driver a frontline worker
6: but i think in this instance there's uh, you know the, the 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 government are the employer for a, the, a huge chunk of these workers so the and i know that there uh, has been some engagement i think there needs to be more meaningful engagement now with the representatives of uh, of the various trade unions and i do think you know we need to acknowledge that uh, Like in the doll we stood up and we gave a round of applause to our frontline workers and and okay well that was the right thing to do but that can't be the only thing that the government do. Do you know what I mean? It can't simply be a case that we say God aren't nurses great and we give them them a round of applause. There has to be some recognition for what they have gone through and the sacrifices that they have made. Now I don't uh, want to negotiate this or to attempt to negotiate this over the airwaves. That's Mm. not the right way to do it. It has to be done in consultation with the relevant trade unions and it has to be done uh, face to face with them and I think the government need as the employer in this instance need to come to the table. Um, let's not forget I mean it was the government themselves who first floated the idea of uh, a bonus for frontline workers they were the ones that said you know we want to do this and I think it's entirely reasonable that frontline health workers would now look at the government and say okay well what is it exactly that you want to do for us and how is it going to work so I think the government are the ones that flew the kite they now need to be the ones uh, to put flesh on the bones of what was their own proposal and uh, to let the workers know what it is that they were what was in their head when they first proposed it but I think Nobody will dispute that uh, our frontline workers went above and beyond, and I don't think anyone uh, would begrudge them, uh, you know, some Hmm. recompense and recognition for that. Now, the other thing we need to look at, you know, is, I mean, I know this might sound like a bit of a cliche, but the the absolute best... (laughs) gift that we could give to any healthcare worker would be to learn the lessons from the pandemic in relation to overcrowding and understaffing and and to rebuild Mm. uh, our health service as a single-tier health service, which is, you know, available to people who need it and not based on their ability to pay. And I think that would be a very fitting tribute to uh, the men and women of our health services. And I I would like to see the government make some meaningful moves in that direction. But uh, if you you give 10
3: days leave, you're going to reduce staffing levels quite incredibly aren't you I mean there's thirty, forty thousand 40000 nurses in the country if they were all to get 10 days leave that's 10 times 30,000 or whatever it is
6: And again, that's why there needs to be Mm. detailed discussions face to face with the workers because, I mean, I know from talking to to people in the health service, some of them have carried over their annual leave from previous Mm. years Mm. and they're now about to lose that annual leave. And actually, as it goes, I did introduce a piece of legislation which would have allowed people to carry over their annual leave that that they couldn't take because of the pandemic Mm. Uh, and that would have allowed them to take that leave um, right up until uh, 2023. Um and indeed, you know, we could even look at extending that just to make sure that they that they get to take all of the leaves that they have. So I mean you make a good point if it is a case that it's only going to be leave, well I don't think that's going to work for an awful lot of healthcare workers because if they do choose to take their leave and and I would encourage everyone to take all of their annual leave, but if they do uh, take their annual leave they're they're not going to be comfortable doing that in a situation where they're leaving their their colleagues back on the wards short and indeed I mean, there are people in the health service who've carried over so much leave because they simply can't take it, so I think that's why there needs to be discussions with the workers because it has to be something that works for them. There's absolutely Absolutely no value in the government saying to nurses well here we are, we're going to give you something and the nurses then say well look that doesn't work for us. So I think that's why there needs to be that detailed uh, engagement and I think that arising out of that and I I do to be fair to the government I think the willingness is there to give give that recognition but I think they need to talk directly to those workers so that it has meaning for them, so that it is something that they can actually use and Mm -hmm. it is something that will be uh, of benefit to them and also you know, we'll acknowledge what they what they went through and the work that they did when they went over and above. Uh, you know, for yeah. all of us to keep mm-hmm. us all safe.
3: Okay, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, indeed, as always. Okay. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Fingal, uh, Louise O'Reilly, who's her party's spokesperson uh, on workers' rights and employment. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Gardaí are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda, Claire Murphy of Trim Station joins us for this week's report and we're going to begin in Cullen uh, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary that happened on Friday of last week.
5: That's correct, Michael. Guardian Slane are appealing for the public's assistance in relation to a burglary that took place in the Glass Allen area of Collin on Friday the 24th of September between 3.30 and 3.45pm. In that short period of time, entry was gained via a back window which had been damaged and the house was ransacked. If you were in the area around this time and noticed anything suspicious, you're asked to please contact Navangarda Station on 046 9036100.
3: Next uh, to Oldcastle, uh, where there's some property that has been lost uh, that you're hoping uh, can be reunited with its uh, proper owner.
5: That's correct, Michael. Oldcastle Gardaí are investigating an incident that occurred on Saturday, September the 25th, whereby a man left Supervalue Oldcastle at approximately 4.30pm. He crossed the road at Barrick Street and walked towards the Bank of Ireland. During this time, he dropped an envelope containing a sum of cash. If anyone recovers an envelope or cash, please do the right thing and get in contact with Gardie and Kells on 046-9280820. The owner would be happy to have it returned.
3: I'm sure that's the case. Okay, we go to Enfield and a robbery there at a local garage.
5: That's correct. Trim Gardie are investigating a robbery at Apple Green Main Street, Enfield at approximately 5pm on Sunday the 26th of September. One man entered the garage, threatened staff with a knife and stole a sum of cash from the till. He then left in the direction of Kinnegad. The suspect described as being male and wearing a black jacket with a hood. If anyone was in the area at the time and can help in any way, please contact Gardie here in Trim on 046
3: Okay, a uh, pharmacy uh, that was broken into to report on next. This was in Ashburn on Friday.
5: Yes, Gardie and Ashburn are investigating a burglary at Adrian Dunn's Pharmacy on Friday morning, the 24th of September, between the hours of 3am and 4am. The front door of the shop was forced open and a quantity of perfume was stolen. Anyone who may have information that could assist Gardie in their investigation, please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01
3: uh, another burglary to report on and some valuable equipment taken. Uh, this is at Grange, Geith and Slane.
5: Guardian Slane are appealing for information following a burglary that took place on Wednesday night into Thursday morning, the 23rd of September. A quad, cement mixer and power washer were taken from a shed on the premises. If anyone saw anything suspicious in the Grange, Geith area of Slane or is offered property described in suspicious circumstances, please contact Nav and Garda station on 046 90. 36100
3: Now to a particularly brazen crime, uh, this happened on uh, Port Beach uh, on Friday of last week.
5: That's right Michael Guardian and Clarehead are investigating the theft from a vehicle on uh, sorry, from a vehicle on Friday last the 24th of September. The injured party had parked her car in the car park of Port Beach, Clarehead just before 2pm. She was standing on the the sea edge approximately 30 metres away for around 15 minutes. When she returned to her car, the passenger window had been smashed and an iPad and MacBook had been stolen. If you were in the area around the time and notice anything suspicious, please contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041 98
3: Okay, yeah, they know no fear as they say. Uh, we go to Drogheda next uh, and uh, another window broken on a vehicle there.
5: Yes, Guardian Drahata again investigating criminal damage to a vehicle which was parked on North Strand Drogheda, between 7pm and 10:30pm on Wednesday, the 22nd of September. The window of the vehicle was broken and the vehicle was entered. If you are in the area at this time and notice anything suspicious, please contact Drogheda Garda Station on zero four one nine eight seven
3: four two zero zero. Okay, well, before you leave us uh, this uh, September morning, uh, some. Road safety advice, which comes with the time of the year that's in it.
5: That's right, Michael. Gardie would like to remind the public to be, please be mindful that roadside hedge cutting season has begun again and there has been an increase in large machinery operating along roadsides recently, particularly on country roads. We would like to remind all road users to please drive with care and to remain alert at all times.
3: Indeed, and uh, be thinking what might be around the corner for that matter. Thank you indeed, Garda Claire Murphy of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, let's uh, hear some more of your comments uh, before we leave you today. And uh, as always, our our thanks uh, to everybody who has been in touch. Betty Daly, one of the people texting us saying, Michael, food for a thought is all some ministers need instead of eating food. Uh, some of them have sanity bellies. I'm not sure what a sanity belly is. Uh, Betty, uh, but I probably have one too. Uh, she says some of them need a close shave. I probably need a close shave too. And she says some of them need haircuts. I don't need a haircut. I had one and it was very tight. Uh, but thanks uh, for your text. Uh, Mary in touch to see to say, delighted to see Justice Done. Uh, with R. Kelly. It happened in this country for years and it's still happening to young girls and boys. Hard part for me is this. There are still some people in communities uh, that still cover up this horror. Afraid of bringing shame on the families. Only perverse people would want to have sex with underage girls and boys and they don't change. Thanks Mary. Thank you very much indeed. That's the final word. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on lmfm good morning bye-bye
2: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie
1: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot bot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times